0: everyone welcome to bridge to the bay with dr varis i'm dr matt varis and this is episode nine with dr amanda ali amanda and i met in grad school and she's since gone on to be an incredibly successful academic in the osteoarthritis space she's now an assistant professor at michigan state as well as wayne state and a member of the henry ford health system now amanda does great osteoarthritis research specifically related to genomics which is sort of Cutting edge technology and really advancing the field. It was a pleasure to meet with her today, especially because I've known her for a while and watched her go through her successes in her career, where she's now got to where she wanted to be, being a professor. We talk about going through grad school in Canada, how she got into science when she was younger, and that transition to becoming a professor. We also talk about sort of the difficult parts of studying osteoarthritis and bringing treatments to the clinic. So if any of that sounds of interest, enjoy. If not, hopefully one of the future episodes will be of interest. Hey, Dr. Amanda Ali, how are you doing?
1: I'm good, Matt. How are you?
0: I'm doing pretty good. I can't complain.
1: I'm super excited to be chatting with you today.
0: Thanks so much. Thanks for doing this with me. It's a great opportunity to tell the story of a professional that's gone through academia and all the trials and tribulations that entails. You were kind of like one of the people that showed me the way. And so I very much respect you and what you've done. And so I'm I'm so excited that you've uh, agreed to do this conversation.
1: That's that's really quite flattering. And uh, believe it or not, I'm still surprised anybody wants to talk to me and hear about my career path. So um, (laughs) it's truly an honor.
0: That's great. Too humble. Maybe we could just start with the audience and letting them know how we know each other briefly.
1: Sure. So I really don't remember because, and I I hope that that's okay, because I started my postdoc uh, at the University of Western Ontario in 2015. So maybe you can remind me what stage of career you were at at that point, but I met a lot of people at the same time. Uh, And so I recall spending a lot of time with the buyer Lab. And of course, the buyer Lab is connected to many other labs, uh, the Sagan Lab being one of them. And I believe at that time you were in Uh, Cheryl's lab. Is that right?
0: Yeah, I think I was a summer student about to start grad school.
1: Yes, that definitely makes sense because I remember that you were a little bit shy, uh, a little bit quiet, but I had an immediate impression of you uh, uh, of being very pensive and very smart. So whatever it is you did, um, (laughs) it, it obviously left a good impression. Uh, but I definitely had the sense that you were kind of junior to uh, the people that I was surrounding myself with, essentially. Because at that point, as mentioned, I was a postdoc. Um, and of course, we know that there there are these informal ranks in the labs. Yeah. Um, and so I, I don't remember interacting with you so much in the beginning. But I think uh, as I spent more time with the buyer Lab and again, Sagan Lab, I think that's when we start to, to hang out a little bit more. Is that right?
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think the first time I remember talking to you, it was actually a night out, and I think it was pretty early on in you starting. And, you know, I, I was bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. I felt completely out of place, like imposter syndrome, all of that. I think I was by far the youngest person around there. So I was just, like, happy and impressed that they invited me to come along and, and to meet everyone around. So I, I, yeah, I was definitely shy. I think you read that right. But I was hoping, you know, to just sit back, learn, uh, get to know people. And at a certain point, maybe I'd feel like I belonged a little more. And I think, you know, that was the case as I grew up a little.
1: Yeah. And interestingly, I was probably feeling the same way because I was uh, a new postdoc uh, in a new field. Uh, And so we can definitely discuss that a bit more later. But I was leaving basic sciences, uh, diving a little bit more into qualitative research. So not only was I outside of my comfort zone in terms of uh, science, but also it was the first time I had left Toronto. Um, And although London is not so far away from Toronto in Ontario, uh, I still felt like it was a little bit of a life change for me. And so maybe we had that in common and and probably one of the ways in which we bonded.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, We'll definitely get back to the postdoc. And I want to talk about imposter syndrome and how that changes or stays the same, I guess, how you progress through those uh, unofficial ranks in the hierarchy. But yeah, that's a good background. You kind of established that we were in Ontario. Uh, We met each other in London, Ontario, Western. My next question is, uh, where did you grow up? And maybe along that little story, uh, if it applies, you could tell us where you kind of got interested in science or fell in love with science.
1: Sure. um, I could probably, you know, talk for hours about this, but I grew up in Scarborough, Ontario. And so my entire life was really spent in the greater Toronto area. However, I was born in Guyana, which is a small country uh, in South America, which not a lot of people know. Uh, I did, however, immigrate to Canada when I was a year and a half. So for all intents and purposes, I am Canadian, Mm. but I still am very proud of my heritage, especially because I think there are not a lot of people from the Guyanese community or the West Indian community Who go on, dare I say it, to achieve the things that I've achieved? Um, (laughs) I I think there are many successful people, obviously, uh, but I think specifically in academia, probably uh, uh, far fewer. Um, So I do, I do want to give a shout out to Guyana and say that I'm, I'm a very proud Guyanese person, Um, (laughs) and and and, you know my culture continues to be a part of my life. But you know I was raised again, as I mentioned, in, in Toronto, and so. I feel like I was always in a very multicultural, stimulating, diverse environment. That being said, my parents were first-generation Canadians. They were immigrants. And so they didn't really have higher education. They didn't really pursue education. But that being said, somehow my dad managed to instill in me this very clear message from a very young age that knowledge is power. And I don't think he meant education per se. I don't think he meant formal education per se. I think he probably meant Um, having a certain skill set, having a way of speaking, of communicating, having certain um, abilities to conduct yourself in the world so that people wouldn't take advantage of you. So my dad Mm. was this person who had this dream for us, for for my brother and I, to have some education and to do better than he did. I think that's probably any parent has that same goal. So Mm. first, I don't know how he did this. I still wonder about this constantly because (laughs) I started kindergarten and complain to the teachers that we were spending too much time playing and not enough time reading and writing. (laughs) So I think that one could say in retrospect, I was probably born to be a scholar. (laughs) But I don't think that that happened by chance. I think that that was the direct product of my dad telling me this message that school is very important. Despite the fact that they themselves did not have any formal education, in fact, no one in my extended family has ever gone to university, so they don't have any a bachelor degree, wow. I kind of had to carve my own path. And that was difficult. But I think sometimes when you're faced with difficulty, it makes you that much stronger. So I'm currently reading uh, David and Goliath uh, by Malcolm Gladwell. And it's such a good book. I know an, an older book, but such a good one that talks about how adversity can actually make people stronger and, and have, help people mm-hmm. thrive despite what may seem like uh, a disadvantage. I think in having to carve my own way, I really pursued things that were important to me. Um, My parents were not necessarily pushing me one way or the other. So although I didn't have early exposure to science, I think that I knew that I wanted to do something of substance, something worthwhile, whatever that meant. Uh, And I think Uh a lot of people in Asian communities know what this means. This means become a doctor, become a lawyer. I never never really fortunately had that pressure, but I knew my parents wanted me to go to school. So by the end of high school, I was really struggling because I didn't know what to do. I knew I wanted to go to university, but I didn't know what I wanted to study. Mm -hmm. I had throughout my high school career taken very general courses trying to keep all of my options open, but really by the end of it, still didn't have a clear idea as to what I wanted to do in university. So I ended up in a very general program for my undergraduate degree. It's called the Health Studies Program at the University of Toronto in Scarborough. Uh, and what that allowed okay. me to do was take a variety of different courses uh, and gain exposure to different fields. And I I do mean variety because I'm talking about things like anthropology and business and psychology, as well as some chemistry and some and some biology. But Courses like integrative biology and systems ecology. So I think from the outset I kind of positioned myself as a person of uh breath rather than depth.
0: Yep. Mm-hmm.
1: And so during during undergrad, I was, you know, I, I was pretty successful. I did a good degree graduated with a Bachelor of Science. But then again, I didn't know what I wanted to do after undergraduate. So it was kind of like this stepping stone of every stage of my career. I wasn't sure what I wanted to do next. And I hope that this message is, is one that will help some people who are probably not sure what they want to do with that. I was not a young child wanting to be a scientist my entire life. <laughs> just, rather, I was just kind of following the breadcrumbs that appeared yep. throughout the, the career, my career trajectory. So in my fourth year uh, of undergraduate, I had an amazing teaching assistant who told me about a fourth-year research project. Um, and he told me I needed to approach various professors and ask them if they'd be willing to accept me in their lab. Um, and that if I you know, spent three, four months uh, doing this research placement, I'd get an idea as to what it might be like to be in research. Around the same time, I remember one of my biology professors, uh, her name is Rhian Harrison, Um, I think she's a a bone biologist who does a lot of cool stuff with sending cells into space. I remember her giving a brief introduction about what graduate school was all about. At the time, I had no context, no framework in which to understand what she was even talking about. I had no idea what a PhD was or a master's was. I didn't know what graduate (laughs) school was. I remember when I was younger, at one point, I wanted to be a psychologist, but someone told me, oh, you have to do a PhD and a PhD takes 10 years and you have to write a (laughs) thousand page book. I was like there's yes. no way I could do <laughs> that. So I dropped it. So again, I but I hadn't made the connection that PhD means graduate school and this is what this this professor was talking about and this is what the TA had suggested I kind of delve into. So long story short, I decided to do this fourth year course in plant biology. So I grew rice and I varied external concentrations of various ions and and see how that influenced the yield of these rice plants. Uh, of different mm-hmm. strains. And so that was my first experience in research. And then at the end of that, I decided I could do, I should apply for a master's program. Uh, and I applied to a few places. And I fortunately got into the Institute of Medical Science at the University of Toronto, where I started in the master's program, and then transferred to a PhD mm-hmm. program. And I think by this point, I forget the question you even asked me at the beginning. <laughs> <I should laughs> probably
0: stop talking no, about. that's, <laughs> no, that's great. Um, you know, the more you've, flesh out your story, the less talking I have to do. And I know people get sick of me talking, talk too much. But yeah, just a couple of things. The question was, could you give us a background on how you grew up uh, and where well, you fell in love with science? So you answered it perfectly. Well, but it just a couple comments along the way. Uh, <laughs> that's what we want here. I Yeah, I definitely don't know any other Guyanese people in academia. I don't think I've come across any. There, there's one Guyanese person... We knew growing up who worked with my dad. His name was Tucker, and he used to call him, he'd say, My name's Tucker. And so my dad called (laughs) him Tucker. So so we thought it was, you know, T U C K A or something was his name. And we heard him say it. It's like, Oh, no, he's saying Tucker. And we're just (laughs) making fun of my dad. But uh, I always remember my dad, and, you know, they, they had some family friends, I think, when they were younger, my parents that were Guyanese, and they always called them like the sweetest, most generous, hospitable people. And there's so few of them in North America, but every time you see them, it's a blessing because they're just, you know, want to be friends, make you feel welcome. And, you know, I think you kind of hold true on that perspective as well. I always thought you were super friendly, easy to talk to. It kind of got along with everyone. I'm um, so
1: happy to hear you say that because I think we definitely are a social people um, and I'm glad you have a positive impression. You're dead, <laughs> dead on with the accent for sure. Many people probably don't know. I do consider myself an introvert, but being a part of the community and seeing how much family matters, how much friends matter, it's impossible yeah. for me to be alone. So I think that <laughs> um, that 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 skill has served me well, though, you know, being forced to be around people and understand how to interact with people. So uh, I think you're, you're absolutely right. You hit the nail on the head there.
0: Yeah. And I think, you know, maybe academia could use a little more of that camaraderie. So I'm glad you're there. And I hope many more follow. The other thing you said was about kindergarten, which I thought was pretty funny, because uh, I remember getting so excited to go to school because you watch all these like TV programs or whatever. when I'm like three years old and it's like, you know, the kids get their pencil case and their backpack and they go to school and, you know, they got work to do. You know, they're, they're getting down to work. They're doing something. Right. And so I remember like a year ahead of starting kindergarten, I was telling my mom, okay, I need to make sure I'm ready. I need to make sure I have the right pencil case and everything I need. And she's like, oh, there's, it's, it's, you're not going to need that probably. So don't worry too much about it. I'm like, no, but like, I want to take it seriously. I want to do my learning. And then, yeah, you get there in class and pretty much it's babysitting. It's about teaching kids to like be able to sit in place or like listen or follow instructions, that kind of thing. Yeah. And I remember a lot of it was kids getting time out where they had to go sit in the corner. And I'm like, this is not what I was expecting at all. And she's like, it's okay. This is just a year. Next year, it'll be different. I'm like, okay, I'll have to trust you, I guess. But I think uh, I took it seriously and you took it seriously too.
1: I'm so glad to hear that I'm not alone on this because <laughs> maybe it's a, it's a phenotype, like a, a personality characteristic <laughs> or something um, for academics who are just really interested maybe. in, I don't know, <laughs> in learning.
0: Yeah. Uh, who knows? I'll have to ask a bunch more people about what they were thinking in kindergarten. That could be fun. You kind of told us about undergrad and then applying to the master's, right? What master's program did you apply to how would you go about finding a supervisor at a project that kind of thing
1: uh that's another story in resilience i think because i was late to the game so again you know having to kind of carve this path for myself i did not know that people were looking for master's and phd supervisors year two years in advance volunteering in labs um, making mm-hmm. connections, networking, et cetera, all the buzzwords we know now really make a difference. And so I started applying I, I first of all I was accepted into the into the Master of Science program uh, the at the University of Toronto, as I mentioned, which which again was a, a major accomplishment. I think I have to say that acceptance was qualified. I would only be accepted if I identified a supervisor who agreed to take Mm. me in their lab. And as I mentioned, I had not been networking. I didn't have any leads. So I started to hustle and then identified a couple of key disease areas that I was really interested in. And how did I happen Mm. upon this? Well, I had two grandmothers at the time. One of them suffered with diabetes, the other one with osteoarthritis. And so I figured, why not try to understand what's going on in these two disease areas? So Mm. I looked up all of the PIs or professors at the University of Toronto, who are affiliated with the Institute of Medical Science, who are studying in one of these disease areas. I interviewed with about five people. I remember all of those interviews like they were yesterday, um, (laughs) because I really admired these people. And Some of them I had very positive interviews with. They were encouraging and supportive and helpful. And others were not as helpful and were a little bit, it was demoralizing and and they were a little bit demeaning because I did not have a traditional background. My background wasn't in um, human biology or genetics and genomics or anything like that. And that's what their labs focused on. So now as a Mm -hmm. PI, I can understand why, they would have maybe not seen me as the ideal candidate as a person. I still think that you need to kind of treat people uh, with a little bit of compassion. Maybe that's the reason I remember these interviews so clearly. From that process, I really only heard back from one person. And that was Ben Allman, who is an orthopedic surgeon at the Hospital for Sick Children, uh, an amazing scientist as well uh, in orthopedics. He called me, I think it was a Friday. I can tell you the exact story. It was a Friday (laughs) at four o'clock. Uh, I was at the dealership. I think I had taken my car in for an oil change or something like that. And I was about to leave the dealership and my phone rang. And he said, hi, Amanda, this is Ben Allman. And I was like, okay. <laughs> um, and he's like, are you still interested in joining my lab? And I was like, yeah, but the deadline was this morning. It's too late. Uh-huh. So don't worry about the deadline. Um, <laughs> yeah, don't don't worry about that, right? Um, And so that was my first lesson in, you know, PIs being able to throw some weight around. Um, But he's like, I'm going to put you on the phone with my current uh, PhD student, who at the time was Alvin Lin, an MD PhD student who, you know, ended up being an amazing mentor for me. Uh, And he's going to tell you about a project that if you're interested in, you can work on this. And it was the only osteoarthritis project in Ben's lab at the time. and By Mm -hmm. some miracle, he agreed to take me. And I think that when I interviewed with him, I I must have made some kind of impression. I don't know what that is. He never told me uh, because he had already taken two new graduate students that year uh, and he didn't have room for anyone else, but he ended up taking me anyway. So I was the third graduate Mm -hmm. student he ended up taking on that year, which is a lot, I think. That was the beginning of the rest of the story. Had he not called me on Friday at 4 p.m. and said, don't worry about it, I'll I'll make sure the paperwork's taken care of, I would not have, none of this would have happened. So I think that was really, it was one of those pivotal moments in my life where things worked out the way they did, and I'm eternally grateful. That's just such a fun story to tell. But again, I remember it like it was yesterday as well, so...
0: Yeah, that's a wild story. A lot of pressure. You're like in a pressure cooker, but it's so exciting as well, especially with the the positive end result there. I'm curious if you notice like a personality difference between Ben and the rest of the people you interviewed with. I'm just asking because a similar situation to me trying to do an undergrad thesis with Cheryl. It was, I think I interviewed with five people. A few of them were like older guy profs that were very just kind of like, dismissive. I didn't particularly enjoy speaking with them. And uh, I think they were maybe a little rigid in their thinking. This is just from like a 10-minute conversation. I'm getting these uh, impressions. So I don't know how accurate they are. And I remember there's only one guy that said he may be interested in taking me. And the last interview I did was with Cheryl. And after that, it was like, holy shit, I got to work in this lab. And it's like, I don't really care exactly about what the science is on. I'm going to do a little genetics and that kind of stuff, which I like. But the focus isn't necessarily that, but the environment is wonderful. And I feel like I can make something of it as long as I'm surrounded by good people. So I'm curious if you got sort of a vibe like that from Brian.
1: Yeah, I I think that's interesting, the things you notice and the factors you use to weigh these decisions. Uh, I remember his lab being beautiful. So first of all, it was in the Mars building, downtown Toronto, which is a large glass building and very new and very shiny. Um, and compared mm-hmm. to some of the older buildings at the U of T campus that were very dungeon-like with no windows, <laughs> and I know we, we all know labs like that, um, that was yeah. my first impression. Like, what a cool place! What a cool location to work in. Second thing was he had a pretty big lab, so I remember mm-hmm. meeting with maybe five or six people on the day that I interviewed and briefly chatting with all of them. Each of them having different personalities, a different thing to offer um, in terms of their experience, but. I liked knowing that there would be a bigger group to support me because I was very well aware that the learning curve would be steep. So that was the second thing. And then Ben had this enthusiasm. He was so excited talking about his research <laughs> and it's yeah. contagious. When someone's excited about their work, it's hard not to be because, you know, yeah. they, they they kind of convey this, this, uh, I don't know, excitement or, or whatever it is. He was very enthusiastic. And I think, his positivity and his overall disposition is what I, I really looked at. It wasn't really about the research at that point, which is interesting, mm-hmm. right? Because I think that's maybe if I was more seasoned and I had a better idea, I would be looking at his publication record or I don't know, something like that, or what, what his previous trainings had gone on to do. I, I didn't look at any of those things. I just knew that it was an environment that I thought I could thrive in and and he seemed excited and, and that that was something I would be interested in doing.
0: Yeah. So was that the case? How was the grad school experience?
1: You know, uh, it depends on who you ask in my lab. I think different people had different experiences, but mine was extremely positive. I loved my PhD. It was very difficult Mm -hmm. because I didn't know what a PCR was. And that put me at a serious disadvantage. Um, I still remember Mm -hmm. the day when Ben came and asked me about, you know, setting various temperatures and, and various concentrations of different components in the PCR Uh, without going into details but I didn't have the answers and I felt very in over my head for a little bit I also remember the first day I tried to do animal work I remember Mm -hmm. picking up this mouse and thinking I'm I can't do this because I I have this phobia I'm afraid of every moving thing dogs and cats and, and and whatever you know so When I when I had to do animal work because it was the natural part of my of my research project that would be the next step, I was very worried. And I remember the day I left, the first day I handled mice by myself, and I I left the mouse facility. And I was walking back towards our lab. I called my dad, and I said to him, "Like, I can't do this. I'm dropping out because this is too difficult." And again, he was the person who said to me, "You've overcome more difficult things than this in the past. You're going to do it. You just need to stick with it." (laughs) Nice. That's exactly what I needed to hear. He's always (laughs) been the person, uh, when I I meet the brick wall, he's always the one to give me the tools to either break it down or to get over it. So I credit that to him again. But there were these really big challenges. And I think Ben, as a supervisor, was very busy. So he did not have the time to necessarily handhold. He did not have the time to say, this is how you design the experiment. This is how you execute the experiment. He kind of gave everyone ideas and he let them go with it. So that worked really well for some people in the lab, especially people who were senior or who kind of had their own ideas as to what they wanted to do. But of course that left um, more junior people struggling a little bit more and I was one of those people. But by the end of it, again, I think that struggle is part of my success story because I think that is what, caused me to work a little bit harder and try a little bit harder and find other ways to do things, talk to more people, read more papers, and then trial and error. So I did a lot of experiments that failed, but only in doing so did I learn how to make them work. So my PhD was seven years, and I I call it successful because I published a a really nice study. You know, we identified that cholesterol uh, was elevated in the cartilage of people who have osteoarthritis, and this was the Mm -hmm. first time a study had actually, actually looked at the cartilage. So there were previous studies looking in the body, showing that cholesterol could be bad for osteoarthritis. But this is the first study that really looked at the cartilage. And again, we had to use mouse models um, to do that. Uh, mm-hmm. But at the end of it, it was a labor of love. And I'm really proud of that study now because I know how much effort went into it. The skills that I developed along the way are skills that are not only transferable, but that can continue to serve me uh, in the lab you know, even now. So I think overall, I would call my PhD experience very successful.
0: Yeah. And I think from the people that knew about your PhD, they would call it that as well. I find it funny that you talk about not knowing what a PCR is, because that's like dealing with genetics, essentially. That's part of it. What you essentially got really great at is kind of genetics, right? Associated with osteoarthritis. You're kind of like
1: isn't that wild? Yeah. (laughs) I still think about that all the time. The first time I heard about (laughs) sequencing, um, and I did sequencing projects during my PhD and I had no idea what I was doing. It it was a new (laughs) technology, first of all. Um, I was, you know, again, at at a disadvantage because I didn't have the background knowledge that one would have gotten in undergrad. Um, I had never taken Mm -hmm. a genetics course or anything like that, but I was, I was going trial by error. I was, going through the motions, learning as I needed to learn. And now sequencing is the bread and butter of my lab. Um, (laughs) uh, So it's it's very, very bizarre when you think about it. But I think it's such a good way to demonstrate that wherever you are now is not going to define where you are 10 years from now. So the sky's the limit when it comes to what you think you can do.
0: Yeah. And it's almost like by you getting through that difficult place you strengthened exactly the place that you were maybe weaker in and then you become stronger overall. And, uh, you know, not necessarily everyone would have gone through that struggle. So wouldn't have built that skill base on top of it. So, you know, what your dad said was was probably pretty good advice there, right? Kind of carried with you.
1: Exactly. And I think this is a reoccurring theme throughout my career trajectory. I am not one to cower. If someone tells me I can't do something, um, then they better step aside because that's that's the only motivation that I need in order yes. to, to do to do the impossible. And one of my favorite quotes is from Eleanor Roosevelt: "You must do the thing which you think you cannot do." This is the epitome of of how I've I kind of progressed throughout my career.
0: That's awesome. That's awesome. <laughs> well, I think it's uh, I could definitely see the results of that. So I think it's working for you. Okay, so you're in grad school. You're saying you're in over your head at the beginning. We would typically call that imposter syndrome, which I think academics are acutely aware of now. Were you aware of that term or or kind of what that meant at the time?
1: I'm glad you asked about imposter syndrome because it's a topic that I continue to think about all the time. I just finished reading this amazing book and of course the the title escapes me, but um, I can share that with you later. I didn't learn or I couldn't name imposter syndrome until later in my PhD, but I was definitely having all the feelings. Mm -hmm. I was surrounded by people who had traveled a lot and who had thought about science a lot and who had families who were very well educated. I was in a very different environment when I was downtown Toronto in the lab compared to when I was Mm -hmm. you know, a short train ride away in Scarborough with my family. That juxtaposition I only later realized was very difficult to navigate because I almost was two different people. Uh, when I was at work, wow. I, I, you know, spoke in a different way and conducted myself in a different way, dressed in a different way Yeah, because I knew that that is what it would take to be successful. And I always joke about this because I always tried to dress nicely and people would be like, why are you dressed up for the lab? And I, I would always say, <laughs> I dress for the job I want, not the job I have. And, uh, right. That has obviously served me well. As, you know, <laughs> but anyway, I digress. I think imposter syndrome has really a strong, a big presence throughout. Like from the time I started grad school, even from the time I did that fourth year project, there were other people in the lab who knew a lot more than I did, who are a lot more familiar with the scientific process, with the yeah. academy, etc. And I was just learning by osmosis, almost not osmosis diffusion, but. You know, it was a process, but I don't think anyone ever gets over imposter syndrome. So I guess you would call me successful at this point. I have my own lab. I'm doing well. I just got (laughs) funding. I think that's fair. Okay, so let's go with that. I still don't feel I don't feel that I haven't internalized that and I don't know (laughs) why that is. Uh, but again, I think that that maybe serves me well in my career. I think if you ever get to the point where you're like, okay, I've made it, I'm here now, I'm better than everyone else. That's probably not for me. And I'm sure I could have stopped at many stages of my career and, and called it a day and said, okay, this is enough for me. But again, I think that each person has to decide that for themselves. They have to decide what is what is going to be the end game for them. But one of the things that I found in my career is that as I achieve one goal, other ones just naturally pop up and you want to keep striving. And the the more you achieve the things you couldn't, the more inclined you are to set more difficult goals. And so it's this kind of positive feedback loop that, you know, helps promote success. I think imposter syndrome, the the major message of the book that I recently read that I'll share is you have to recognize when it is at play and know that it's not you, but it's the context Mm -hmm. and the situation and the environment. So I think yeah. imposter syndrome is so common in academia because we are surrounded by immensely intelligent people. So when you surround Definitely. yourself with in- intelligent people, it is inevitable that you're going to feel inadequate. You will have these feelings of incompetency or imposterism and you, you think you don't belong. But I think the first step is recognizing that the context may be creating those factors. Yes. Um, and the other, the other really nice thing that this book highlights is factors that specifically influence women um and how women are socialized to be more demure and to not not think that they're they're belong that they belong in certain contexts to not speak up and and a variety of other factors that you know I can't adequately summarize but i think the the main thing is recognizing that the context is creating the feelings naming those feelings and then starting to understand that it is not you it is not inherent to you it's not about you not belonging it's rather you know the situation that you're in
0: yeah yeah, I think you really nailed that. For For me, it's about context as well. And uh, I think for me, the most I felt as an imposter was when I was writing, sort of those like big pieces that you have to write. So the first was uh, the undergrad thesis. And I remember, I actually remember when I came for my campus visit in undergrad, they'd like do a tour with you with like current students. One of them was like a fourth year student who was doing her... Undergrad thesis. And she's like, yeah, I, I gotta write like, you know, a hundred page thesis or something at the end of the year. And I'm thinking to myself, like the most I wrote in high school was like, I don't know, three pages or something. This is ridiculous. How do you do that? And that's just one course out of all of them that you have to do. This is crazy. I don't know if I could do that. And then by the time, I kind of always remember that in the back of my head. And then by the time I got to fourth year, I was like, okay, well, I've written a little more, it's still a lot, but at least I know that people that did this felt the same, and that they just kind of chipped away at it, and eventually it's done and then once you have that, that's an accomplishment that you can then point to like okay, I did that now maybe it makes it more realistic that I could do something even bigger and I remember the big thing in grad school was writing my first paper because I'd written an undergrad thesis, and it was you know it contained a lot of the information that would go into a paper. But when it got time to write that paper and I was thinking of it like, oh my goodness, this is going to a scientific journal. I'm going to get ridiculed. It's going to be a disaster. You know, I don't know what I'm doing at all. And so I remember talking to Cheryl, who was always very encouraging, especially early on. I was like, no, just just write it. I'm like, you're not going to give us like any real tips or pointers. She's like, you can write it. Just <laughs> give it a shot. And we'll, we'll we'll work on what you have. I'm like, oh, I don't know, like, where do I even start? She's like, it's okay, you'll figure it out. And so I'm like, just kind of freaking out. But thankfully, I was writing with uh, one of my lab mates. And so it was, you know, a collaborative process. So it wasn't just me. But, you know, eventually I got some words on the page, you know, filled up the space that we needed, sent it over to Cheryl. There was a bunch of red marks on there. In the end, you know, we got it into a, a manageable amount that got the message across and sent it off. Eventually, the paper got accepted. And after that first one, it was like, oh, my goodness, I can actually do this. It's crazy. Pulling back into context, I, you know, after that, I kind of realized what it was, imposter syndrome. I, I had only heard the term maybe around that time. But then I found kind of the best way for me to get out of that mindset was give the context of what all those like people at the ends of their careers or like deep into their careers, what were they doing when they were at your spot? And if you talk to any of them, they'll give you that context. Like, this is what I was thinking of. Yes, I was, felt like an imposter. And then you get through it, right? We're always looking at people at sort of the end results of what they've done. If You can find out what they were going through at that moment. Then it's like, oh, okay. Well, they're just a human, just like me. Maybe I could do it too.
1: Yeah, that's that's such a great example, I think. And having good peers that can support you, a good supervisor who's forcing you through the motions, I think is, is really yeah. important. Um, and kind of not giving you an out. And, and to your point about <laughs> seeing people at the end, you know, social media has made this problem that much worse now, right? So I'm right. avid on Twitter. And I think you see a lot of success stories. You see people announcing that they've, you know, received a grant or published a paper or won an award. But you don't, people, of course, are not, Posting every time they are rejected, or that they, you know, don't have an, a, an application funded, or something like that. So, I think it is important to always remember that this, th- these are highlight reels, and that everyone yeah. goes through their own process. So, I think that's really important.
0: Yeah. What's What's the saying i heard? If you look close enough, every overnight success, like took a lifetime or something like that. Like it's you. You need that context. It is a journey. We're not none of us are magical. We can't just do something out of thin air. So that's been helpful. Yeah. So you're at the, like near the end of your PhD, you've acquired some skills that you didn't have when you started. So now you have like a toolkit. You can go and look for the next step around the last year or so of your PhD. What were you thinking? Cause you know, you gotta either get a job or continue on, I guess, in academia would be a postdoc. So what was going through your mind at that point?
1: Oh, at the end of my PhD, I was so burnt out. I, you you yeah. can ask anyone. I told everyone that I met, I would never do a postdoc. That <laughs> academia was not for me. Um, I couldn't wait to switch and do something else. I just want to go to work at nine o'clock and leave at five o'clock and go home and have a life. So I spent, I was very fortunate. Again, a very supportive supervisor. At the end of my PhD, he gave me about six months that I was still in his lab, working in his lab, wrapping up some experiments, but I was really career searching. And the University of Toronto had amazing resources. I leveraged all of them and systematically ruled out every possible career option. So- (laughs) (laughs) You're <laughs> we talking industry, pharma, government, non, non-profit, everything. I thought about, could I see myself doing this? Would it give me the lifestyle that I want? Would it give me the fulfillment that I want? It just wasn't for me. So then I got a little bit creative and I was like, what is it that I'm really burnt out about? What is it that I really am not loving? And mm. it was the bench work. I hated being at the bench. I hated pipetting. I hated having failed experiments. But I loved getting data. I loved the results and I loved the inquiry. I loved having a question and coming up with an answer and no one else knowing what that mm. was. I thought, how can I continue to stay in research but not have to do experiments? So qualitative research came up as a possibility because you know, at the time, my grandmother, who is now deceased and I miss her very much, but she would say to me, what are you doing in the lab to help me? what are you like so okay so you have these mice like how does that help me and what are you doing for my you know my pain and her osteoarthritis is terrible she had bilateral knees and hips and shoulders and hands all affected by osteoarthritis Uh, by the end of her life she was not able to walk she had no independence very very poor quality of life if, if I can inject my two cents, I think that this led to yeah. her having depression. She was, she was socially isolated. I think that led to cognitive mm-hmm. decline, some early stages of dementia. And I think this mm-hmm. the quality of osteoarthritis is extremely underappreciated. And if I can do one thing with my career and bring more attention to the fact that this is not a disease that's pain, that's a normal part of living, just deal with it. But this is a serious, major chronic condition. And mm-hmm. it requires... Attention, because it's really it's really devastating and compromising people's quality of life, so so that's my serious two cents there
0: yeah, I love that the question that your grandma asked because we don't get those questions enough in academia. I find those are exactly the questions that the public want to know, right, and technically, they're funding us. So we should be trying to get answers to those questions, no?
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And so it, she could, she was asking me this basically the entire course of my PhD, but I would just mostly <laughs> rush her off. Um, but by the end, I, I was thinking, here's an opportunity to answer her. So I thought, yeah. why don't I figure out what resources are available in the community? What does OA management or osteoarthritis management look like in the community? Um, and so to do that, I applied to the University of Western Ontario in London, um, and was awarded this this very prestigious Kirkley Postdoctoral Fellowship. And I was very affectionately known as the Kirkley Fellow the entire time I was there. Right. But um, <laughs> I don't know if you remember that, Matt. But yep, um, that that was great. You had
0: like three supervisors or something. I remember that. You had a very unique position. I, I sure. had
1: many supervisors, and I, I do want to give a shout out to Joy McDermott, who was instrumental in helping me be productive in my postdoc, in helping me take my next steps, uh, in providing me moral support um, to get through what was a very difficult transition from a basic science lab doing genetically modified mouse experiments to interviewing individuals in the community and analyzing transcripts and trying to identify themes in the data that could help us understand what some of the systematic barriers were to improving osteoarthritis care in the community. I spent about a year and a half uh, Western in this postdoc position, but by the end of it, I, I was being kind of, kind of uh, um, poked the entire time about leaving basic science by all of my basic science yeah. colleagues. And I'm happy they did that because it kind of was the push that I needed to go back into the lab. And and my second postdoc was at the University of Toronto again, but the University Health Network with uh, Mohit Kapoor. If it's okay, Matt, can I keep talking about my second postdoc now?
0: Please do. Okay, great. Yeah, of course. <laughs> you're doing you're doing the, my job for me. Okay, it's great. great, good,
1: good, good. <laughs> so I want to roll here. This is all part of the same story because the the PhD that I did was very basic in nature, basic science research, understanding fundamental mechanisms of disease, and then the first postdoc I did was about the community and how do people manage disease in the community but there was a missing piece of the puzzle there in terms of the clinical aspect so how do people go from the community how what is their experience in clinical settings that then we could use to inform basic science experiments to improve therapies i went to the university health network where again mohikapura had established this really incredible biobank that was a resource very well characterized of several 100 uh, patient samples so a variety of different samples had been collected and was basically ready to be used. And that's where Mm -hmm. I returned to sequencing and came back to (laughs) this idea of how are we going to understand markers in the blood that could help us predict if someone was having early stages of osteoarthritis so that we could intervene uh, and better help them manage their disease again in those community settings. So kind of, you know, coming full circle now. So the, the difference yeah. here with sequencing uh, in my second postdoc compared to the sequencing that I did in my PhD. In my PhD, I very much had the mindset, oh, I just need to do this experiment, get it done, write my paper, and then I'm out of here. Uh, I didn't really take the time to fundamentally understand the, the underlying chemistry and, and the bioinformatics, the analyses, the stats that goes into uh, mining those data. Uh, but mm-hmm. during my second postdoc, Uh, Mohit really gave me the opportunity to become a leader in this area. And he did so by uh, providing me with the resources to create a sequencing facility. And so they are currently running the Arthritis uh, Center for Therapeutic and Diagnostics or something like that. I'm butchering the name. My apologies for that. I basically started that center by purchasing the sequencer. And in order to purchase a sequencer, you need to understand how sequencing is done. Uh, because you can, you know, decide on the throughput and how many samples you want to run at a time, what types of samples you want to run, what kind of data you want to output. So that forced me to learn all of the ins and outs of sequencing. And we, we purchased the sequencer, we hired personnel, I was directly involved in hiring people who were going to assemble the libraries, analyze the data, help in project design. And of course, I was the first person to use the center. So uh, I used it to sequence 100 samples. We identified some key factors in early stages of osteoarthritis that could have uh, the ability to predict an individual who's in in that stage of disease. Um, And I published a really nice paper and continue to publish papers still from his lab, which demonstrates that, again, it was a very productive postdoc. But Mm -hmm. really, that is what launched my career, and it's the basis, as I mentioned, of my current lab. And so without that experience, I think, I, again, I wouldn't be where I am
0: today. Yeah. I mean, I remember uh, meeting you at conferences when you're doing that postdoc and then seeing the the posters and presentations and then papers that came out of it. I'm like, holy shit, she's like so far ahead of all of us. We need this data so much. I'm glad she's pushing the field forward. Um, we're just getting started, basically. So yeah, definitely, a really, really cool postdoc, and extremely valuable to the field. Thanks, um, so thanks very so grateful. much for
1: saying that, Matt. And if I can, if I can leave you with one one kind of tidbit of uh, my two cents about sequencing as a whole, um, and mm-hmm. and I'm ripping this from someone else that I don't remember who, but it's so profound, I think, and it's that sequencing technology has advanced much faster than sequencing philosophy. Has advanced. So I think we have a lot of people who are able to take samples and subject them to sequencing and get a ton of data who do not know how to interpret and analyze those data. And that's not a criticism Mm -hmm. to them. I think it's just we as a field collectively need to think very carefully about the data that are being generated, the controls Mm -hmm. that are being used, the comparisons that are being made, the thresholds that are being set. How are we mining those data? What are we keeping? What are we throwing away? I think, you know. Artificial intelligence advancing in the way it is. I think we're we're really entering into a different era when it comes to to understanding sequencing data. Um, but I would say mm-hmm. the one caveat is, you know, not not everyone can do sequencing well. I think anyone can yeah. sequence stuff. That's the one message I think I would give a, about the sequencing field.
0: Right, and so that's why I would trust your papers and a little skeptical for people that haven't done it uh, to that degree, um, that thoroughly. Well, you know, building that skill base and. Putting your stamp on the field, you're creating that launching pad to get that full-time job you're hoping for, right? So kind of uh near the end of your postdoc, did you speak about um again, what was going through your mind, perhaps what also what your colleagues were thinking? Because I think there is uh your colleagues as well were kind of at the forefront of the field as well. Like it was a very, a very productive and well respected lab overall. Uh, And then maybe you could speak upon how typical it is to do two postdocs and for the duration you did and that kind of thing as well.
1: So in total, I had almost five years of postdoc experience, and that was in two different labs. I think Mm -hmm. once I started postdocing, I told myself, I'm giving myself five years. That wasn't set in stone and it wasn't like, oh, the clock's ticking now, I need to move. Things happened the way they did, largely through serendipity. At the end of my postdoc, well, it wasn't the end. I was chugging along happily in Mohit's lab. But what I should say is that I had always been applying to faculty positions. I submitted my mm. first faculty application the first year of my first postdoc. If wow. I read okay. that now, it's stand-up, stand-up comic material because I don't know why I was, <laughs> what I was thinking and who read that. Hopefully no one read it, but it was an exercise in preparing those applications, which are quite in-depth and require a different type of thinking, a different type of writing. And it was a productive exercise. So I probably submitted five or 10 different faculty applications, but not only faculty, I was also applying for other jobs that I thought might be interesting, whether it's in government or nonprofit. things never worked out. And so I just continued to chug along in my postdocs thinking, you know, I didn't know what the end game was. I I didn't know. At some point, I thought when I was in Mohit's lab, I I knew to myself he would never fire me. So I felt like (laughs) I could just stay there indefinitely and be happy, uh, doing amazing science with amazing people in an amazing environment. (laughs) There's nothing wrong with that. I have to give a shout out to Anusha Ratnaswaran because she was a postdoc in Mohit's lab at the time that I was as well. And she told me about this position this opportunity this posting and she said you should apply for this and the reason she suggested it was again actually quite funny because I had recently gotten engaged and my partner is an outdoor guy and he was never he never did well in Toronto where there's skyscrapers and it's a concrete jungle he always liked more of the lakes and and you know Mm -hmm. trees and stuff he we had you know just recently visited Windsor and he loved Windsor so I was making a joke to Anusha saying you know, we're going to move to Windsor because at least we can actually (laughs) afford a house there. She actually kept this in mind. And, and funnily enough, she suggested to me that I apply for this job because it was in Detroit. So it was at the Henry Ford Health System in Detroit. And she suggested that uh, I, I give it a try. So I threw my application in there. But I will say that Mohit helped me a lot at every stage he not only provided valuable feedback on the written application, but when I was invited for an interview, he provided advice that was so insightful that I would not have been able to get to myself. And I'll share with you the specific example. So you're asked to give a job talk. This means you have to present your research and your research plan. So what are you going to do? How are you going to get funding? How are you going to be a successful scientist? And I had put together a PowerPoint presentation and I practiced it, you know, it was half an hour. And he said, this is really good, but instead of going A, B, C, You need to present ACB, meaning that instead of presenting the project, you know, in a logical linear manner, I needed to present the skills that I had, the concepts that I was familiar with, present ideas, not necessarily end results. That really was invaluable experience because when I later was offered the position, I was privy to some information about my, the other candidates that they had interviewed. And I was told that their presentations were very focused and too narrow talked about their postdoc work didn't talk about plans or a big picture Uh, Mm. so had I not been given that advice I don't know how things would have turned out but again this is a a tribute to the amazing mentors that I've had Um, and without him again I don't think that the the things would have happened the way they did but you know this was a combination of Anusha and Mohit encouraging and supporting and facilitating me applying and then ultimately being offered this this position
0: yeah yeah so it sounds like a good support system and environment can really do wonders. I think not just in academia, where you were going for. I think in general, they can really build you up, right? Yeah, yeah absolutely. So and
1: and and I think I've been very lucky uh, at every stage. And that's not to say that things have been perfect. It's not to say I haven't had bad mentors, but bad mentors are just as important because they show you what you don't want to be. They show you how you the example that you want to avoid. Um, so I, yeah. I, I choose to focus on the people that I've had who have lifted me throughout my career and very importantly, I do the best that I can to pay it forward. And I, I myself really focus and, and aim and strive to be a good mentor, um, because there they are sometimes, you know, scarce in academia, depending on where you are. But yeah, I, I have been very privileged and fortunate to have great mentors. And so I, I really hope to be one.
0: Yeah. And I think you're already well on your way. I have no doubt you're going to be a fantastic mentor. To all of your students. And speaking of which, now you have your own spot, your own domain, right? So, what does the Ali Lab do? You know, maybe if you have some big, grandiose, long term plans, you could share it here where it may not be applicable to a grant, but we can get an idea of uh, how a professor who's an expert in their field can kind of see a trajectory.
1: So I want to preface all of this by saying, Matt, it is absolutely fantastic having your whole lab. I love it. It's everything I thought it would be. I am extremely happy doing the things I'm that glad I'm to hear doing. It. And I think you, you you always worry because you have a goal and you're working towards it and you're not sure how things are going to be when you get there. I think there are, there are things that I could probably complain about, but they're so small and insignificant compared to the day in and day out. I feel extremely lucky to be paid to learn and <laughs> advance knowledge and try to cure disease. It's, it blows yep. my mind that this is the career that I, I am so lucky to be able to to pursue. And, and again, coming back to your imposter syndrome, I'm not sure why, why or how it's me, um, <laughs> but I have to remind myself, I, I paid my dues and I, I earned this spot and, and definitely, and I bring a unique perspective. So mm-hmm. That being said, my lab is very much focused on osteoarthritis. So I think you guys have probably heard by now, my PhD, my both my postdocs all focused on osteoarthritis. It is my passion. Mm-hmm. Um, again, you know, I, I think this is a disease that's underappreciated in terms of its impact, uh, not only in society, but at the individual level. And so I use a lot of sequencing, again, as already mentioned, already discussed. But here's my pie in the sky idea that I'm going to share with you that I... I'm not sure that I is even completely fleshed out yet. So I study I something these. called microRNAs and mm-hmm. I didn't I didn't really care for microRNAs again until I got to Mohit's lab and he kind of introduced us to this concept. Epigenetics is a very hot topic. You know, how can these factors modify the interaction between environment and genes to create really nuanced phenotypes and change the way one individual might respond compared to another individual?
0: Could you just take a second to explain what a microRNA is?
1: I was just about to do that. So microRNAs, it's okay, are one type of epigenetic factor. And literally micro means small. And then RNA is kind of what encodes our, our genetic information or it's what directs the DNA to become protein. So this is a small RNA, literally speaking, but it's different from other RNAs because it's more stable. Uh, They're known to primarily repress expression of genes. So they block uh, genes from being Mm. uh, uh, made into protein. And they're found in all of the tissues and biofluids in the body. They're also conserved across many species. So it's really interesting to understand how microRNAs might be contributing to disease. Now, we know that microRNAs are important in osteoarthritis. That's been established in quite a few papers now, quite a few studies now across labs. But what makes me really excited about microRNAs is that they not only are potential biomarkers, meaning they could indicate one person has a certain disease stage versus another person, they also may be contributing to mechanisms, meaning in that person with the microRNA, maybe it's blocking certain genes that's causing the disease. Mm -hmm. And third, they are potential therapeutic targets. So we can design small molecules to block that microRNA so that it's no longer producing that effect no longer causing the disease. So here, my pie in the sky idea is that this is the definition of precision medicine. Can we take a large population of people, identify their specific microRNA signatures that may be contributing to osteoarthritis, design small molecules to block those microRNAs and in those particular individuals, I'm not talking about the entire population, but those specific individuals somehow help to improve their disease outcomes through this mechanism. So that's my pie in the sky idea.
0: I love it. I was going to ask you really, there's no disease modifying therapeutics for osteoarthritis, right? And that's a huge problem because patients have very few interventions to turn to. So I was going to ask you why you think that is. What's the state of the field right now? Do you you feel optimistic? Are there certain areas you think we could push harder on to get there?
1: Sure. And I, I have to preface by saying I'm certainly not an expert in the area of therapeutics or disease modifying osteoarthritis drugs. Uh, But there are, I think, a couple of huge barriers that we're all familiar with in the field. First of all, clinical trials are very difficult because they're not going to go on for 10 and 20 years, which is the the duration that we know osteoarthritis can last Mm. a lot longer in most cases. That's one challenge. Secondly, who do you uh, recruit to clinical trials? How do we know uh, what patients should be included and how they're going to respond to a certain uh, molecule or drug? Um, And I think this is a major challenge because some people have more pain in osteoarthritis. Other people have more structural degeneration. So that means uh, more impacts to their bone and cartilage structures. And sometimes those don't correlate. Sometimes people have pain and they have perfectly normal looking knees on an x-ray. So this heterogeneity and phenotype can cause uh, a bigger problem when we're trying to design a drug now, it has to actually target both of those aspects. Not only does it have to prevent the structure from degenerating, it also has to produce pain, which is really difficult because I think we're only now starting to begin to understand how pain is produced in osteoarthritis. And so there's really exciting work being done. There are a few things, I think, in pipelines and clinical trials. But as far as I know, there have been pretty disappointing results from clinical trials. And as you know, still no currently no approved disease-modifying drug. And so the current clinical practice guidelines really surround pain management and symptom management mm. and how can you delay progression largely through physical activity and diet and, and ha- maintaining a healthy weight, you know, doing all the things we know are good for us, but we still struggle to do. But uh, I think I, I'm, I'm optimistic, of course, but I think that it's it's an awful battle.
0: It's not just about finding the molecule that might change the process of degeneration or change the process of pain propagation because the clinical setup is so challenging itself, right? So it's like you need the basic research to to do its thing and get robust and give you a bunch of options, but the clinical path really needs to be streamlined and they need to come together. And I don't think we're, we're quite there yet, unfortunately.
1: Yeah, I completely agree with you. And I think part of the barriers I'm trying to break down, I think, as an individual, but needs to be done much, much more systematically, uh, is the siloed nature with which we approach disease, right? We have mm-hmm. specialists who are in the community, specialists who are in the clinic, and specialists who are in the lab. Why can't these yeah. people talk to each other or c- kind of communicate? And and, yeah. and you know? I think this would really advance not only definition of the clinical problem, but what do patients really want? What do patients want when it comes to disease modification? And how can we use that to inform the work we're doing in the lab? And I think, again, this is, I hope, one of the unique aspects of my lab because everything we do is with the patient in mind. And although we're a basic science lab, I think it's so important to keep that in mind that these are the people we're trying to benefit.
0: Yeah. Osteoarthritis is uh, age-associated disease. And I'm I'm working on, you know, with a company that's trying to prolong lifespan and kind of uh, mitigate these Age-related diseases, and uh, you know, having a background in musculoskeletal biology, it's something that I think about all the time. It's a real struggle because of when we're really actually looking at the landscape. There's so much that needs to be done, right? And it's to me, it's so it's it's almost surprising that there hasn't been uh, you know a, a set of people that have created that pipeline where it is integrated from patient all the way down to the bench. Maybe that should have been done 20 years ago so that the, the system's in place and they can begin iterating on it, right? But I still think that pipeline is is not clear. Even though there's conferences that bring all these people together, for whatever reason, there hasn't been a great system. Or maybe, maybe it needs to be done in parallel all over the place at once to really get a result. I'm, I'm not sure about that.
1: Sure, sure. And I think I think Matt, you and I need to have a separate meeting as to how you and I can work together to to solve this problem. Definitely. But uh-huh. it's It's definitely you know systems issue, right? It can't be solved, I think, by any individual or an institution or probably even a country. I think we probably need to to get on the same page when we talk about what we're what we're trying to do in curing disease. I again, I'm optimistic that we're moving in the right direction, but change is slow. as we know, people are resistant in academia, people like using jargon. They like having complex language to keep others out. I don't know why. Again, one of my yeah. things is to try to communicate at a level that everyone can understand because I really believe everyone has a different perspective to offer that will only enrich my own, even if it's to decide I don't like their perspective and I'm not listening, which uh, which Fair, actually yeah. happens quite often. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, uh, I would say that we we really need to learn how to communicate better and be more inclusive and kind of integrate different perspectives so that we can really advance advance this complex problem we're trying to solve.
0: Yeah, yeah, I I totally agree. You know, we've talked about science uh, and where your labs at, but kind of ending off things, I want to talk a little bit more about you know beyond the science, what it is to be a person, what life is. Um, you've made that transition as you mentioned, right, from the big city uh, down to you know smaller town i guess but uh you know still a a city a couple cities i guess in their own right could you talk about just briefly about how the dynamics of your life has changed if at all
1: yeah i think i think as we go through different stages of life and i think the pandemic deserves to be called a stage of life as well definitely uh you know things change priorities change interests change and so i moved to windsor away from toronto um, I lived in downtown Toronto, and I loved it. I loved it there. I was yeah. very much a city girl. I didn't need a car. I loved walking, loved jumping on the subway to get to places. And I do miss that. I do miss that. But that being said, you know, as I, as I advance in the years, I think to myself, <laughs> I don't know if Toronto life would always be for me. I'm so grateful I had that opportunity. I miss it. I think about it all the time. So one example is I enjoy running. Going for a run in Windsor is very boring. I'll tell you that because (laughs) you know every time I left my condo in Toronto to go for a run, I'd see different things, or I'd I'd take a different street, or and I'd always manage to get get down to the water, to Harbour Front, and that was cool. Um, Mm -hmm. But you know, in Windsor, you can run in any one direction for hours and and you're not (laughs) getting anywhere. So um, it's different. It's a it's a change of of pace, but it's it's beneficial for my career, and I, I you know I. Not everyone is great with work-life balance and I'm one of those people. So it's very difficult when you do what you love to draw a line and to say, okay, that's right. enough, especially with the pandemic. Um, I don't think that I was working from home. I think I was living at work because it it's just very hard to, to, to step away and say, okay, I need to stop working for today and now I'm going to do something else. I also, uh, you know, I'm addicted to productivity. The more I get done, the happier I feel. <laughs> uh, the more fulfilled I am, but I know that that's not healthy. And so I do make a concerted effort to kind of have other things in my life and and and, and read and, and chat with friends and, and go out when we can, when it's safe to do so. Um, you know, I'm back to traveling and that's something that I think academia is amazing for. Academia allows you to see places and connect with people that you wouldn't otherwise. I think things have changed a little bit in terms of my life, both personal and professional life have unfolded, but I think overall for the better. I think I'm, I'm happy here and during the pandemic, it was great to have more green space and not to be trapped yeah. in a little tuna can in downtown Toronto. So I think that that <laughs> is, you know, again, one of the the pros and cons you got to kind of factor in.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that, ma- that makes sense. Uh, I kind of went the other direction recently from London, Ontario, which is kind of a smaller place. Uh, more space. I could live in a, a townhouse with some friends and we got a yard and garage and that kind of thing to being in a condo downtown San Francisco. You know, I'm, I'm definitely seeing that different change of pace living in the city, and I'm still getting used to that. I moved here during the pandemic, so it's really the opposite of what you did. You know, like you said, going for runs is amazing. There's so much scenery. There's people to see, right? Just a lot of dynamics going on in the city, right? And it's it's exciting, too. I feel like uh, you, you can kind of sense the energy from other people and that people are hustling. That there's things going on. And it's motivating to, to keep going. But I do find that I miss from time to time that relaxation or decompression of being kind of out in a field, more space, that kind of thing. So definitely like here on the weekends, I try to go for hikes and stuff in like less densely populated areas and go out and see nature and, you know, hear the quiet or hear the the sounds of nature instead of the cars and, and all of that. So I feel I'm like... I'm
1: really, really jealous, Matt, because I love San Francisco. Uh, <laughs> I have to say, out of all of the U.S. cities I've visited, which are many, San Francisco is the best. Um, I've been there twice. In fact, my current Facebook profile picture, if anyone remembers what Facebook is, uh, is me at the <laughs> Golden Gate Bridge. Um, so I'm, and it's not just because of Full House. Like, it's not just because I grew up on Full House. its It's <laughs> everything about the city. So vibrant, so rich, and so, I don't know, dynamic. Even the weather.
0: Yeah but yeah it's true <laughs> it keeps it keeps you on your toes for sure there's like microclimates you walk two blocks one way right so i think i'll just end on on one final question it's going to be broad on purpose answer it however you see fit i'm asking it on this in this way on purpose um so you know i'm working at a company right now trying to extend lifespan right and to me i've been thinking a lot lately on Okay, well, then what does life mean? What, what is life? Uh, and what does that mean to you?
1: That's a great question. Very silo- philosophical, philosophical, <laughs> <what> <laughs> philosophical, and quite deep. And I could answer in a variety of ways. So, first thing I would say is I'm in the business of improving quality of life. And I think that could be one of the reasons people don't focus on osteoarthritis as much as they do cancer, for example, because cancer means you're going to die and people don't want to die. People would rather be alive and suffering than be dead. So I think that's why, um, you know, we get less attention. But I think people also don't really want to be suffering. I I really don't (laughs) think that. So I'm I'm interested about extending um, life on the whole. Because the the natural question that I have is, what is that quality of life? It, if you're yep. living to 200, but you're not able to move or feed yourself or do whatever, you know, independent activities of daily living, is that life? Are you living? So I think quality is something we need to think about. I think for me, what life means to me, which is which is the way I'm interpreting your question. It's about fulfillment. And I, I was having this conversation recently. I think that I'm very lucky and maybe one dimensional to some, to the to the pessimists, that my work is extremely fulfilling to me because I really believe fundamentally that I'm trying to help, whether I do so or not, uh, is beside the point because I will have spent my life trying to help others in service of others. And I think when you look at all the philosophers and all of the great minds and, you know, the, the That ultimately, if you live your life in service of others, it's a life worth living. And of course, we we derive more joy when we can when we can help others and we can benefit others. That's why we give gifts and do acts of service or whatever. But I, you know, to be cheesy, I really do. I feel very privileged. I feel very fortunate that my vocation really aligns with my fundamental belief system. That um, if I can spend my days learning really trying to understand the question to its core, maybe I can do something, even if it's a very small thing, even a, v- a very small part, even if it's training the next person who's going to then answer the question or then solve the problem. I'm spending my life trying to do good, trying to, to be better, trying to leave the world a better place than I found it. And for me, that is what a meaningful and fulfilling life is. I don't know if that does that answer your question.
0: Definitely. That's a lovely answer. What more can we do? So I think with that it's been a great conversation. Thank you so much for spending your time with me. I had an absolute great time having this conversation. So thank you.
1: Likewise Matt and I just want to say thank you very much for for creating this podcast and for having this idea to to try to help others as well by sharing. I know you have a very impressive network of colleagues and so good for you for leveraging those colleagues and and getting them to share their stories because maybe some tidbit of information will help others. So I have to say kudos to
0: you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, that's definitely what we're trying to do. uh, Do one small part in trying to keep this uh, community going. So with that, this has been Bridge to the Bay with Dr. Varis with more to come.